I've been, uh, I've been looking forward to this morning. I, I really enjoyed last night, and I've been excited about coming this morning to be with you guys. And I've been excited this morning about worshiping, and I'm excited about teaching the Word of God. And I've shared this with you before, but I'm not excited because I'm teaching. I'm excited because it's the Word of God. And even as I share it, I get ministered to. I get, I get challenged. And I'm praying this morning that that's going to be the result of our time, is that we're going to live more courageously. We're going to be bolder. We're going to be more yielded and surrendered to God than ever before. That we won't leave the way we came, transformed a little bit more into the likeness of Christ. I want to um, have, you, have you turn to the book of Acts. We're going to continue our study there this morning. And it's a fairly lengthy passage from chapter 7. And so I want to have you just kind of settle back in your chair and listen. You can have your eyes closed. You can follow along, whatever you want to do. I'll do my best to read it in a way that's meaningful to you. And then we'll spend the balance of our time considering its application to our life. But it's quite an exciting passage that we are considering this morning. And I've entitled the message, Stephen, A Profile in Courage. And this is part two, a continuation from last week. Just to give you a bit of background, Stephen has been uh, indicted, accused of several crimes that we'll talk about in a moment. And, uh, and chapter seven, in essence, is his defense, not just for himself, but for the faith in Christ Jesus alone. And so it's a remarkable passage. It's a remarkable uh, uh, demonstration of the early church's courage in witnessing for Christ. And I'm praying that it's gonna be transforming for us as well. So we pick it up as he is before the Sanhedrin being falsely accused with false witnesses of crimes he hasn't committed. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest asked him, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because these patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. 
Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up a shrine of Molech and the star of your God, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. 
Having received the tabernacle, our fathers unto Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out from before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men, as the prophets say. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Father, I thank you for this text this morning. And, and Lord, you know my heart right now, God. I, I want so much to give something that's precious and of value to your sons and daughters, to those that you sent your son to die for on the cross, those that you promised that you would never leave or forsake, those that you have promised and committed to finishing the work that you've started in. And God, I'm asking, I'm crying out to you and begging that you would help me, Lord, to speak your word faithfully. And so, Holy Spirit, I yield myself to you and we yield our hearts to you. It's time it's time for us to yield ourselves completely. It's time for us to bring a sacrifice of not just praise from our lips, but of a life laid down before your throne. It's time. And I'm praying that this morning as you speak your word and as it goes out, that Lord, you would challenge me, that you would challenge us to be men and women of courage. Men and women full of faith, men and women full of your Holy Spirit, men and women full of loving kindness and men and women full of power by your spirit for the accomplishing of great things, for the extension and expansion of your kingdom in these final days. And so we're crying out, expecting great things, but thanking you in advance for your help. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. You'll recall from our study last week, we were talking about a courageous leader in the New Testament church. Remember that Stephen had been appointed to be a deacon in the church, one of the first seven deacons ever appointed. 
He was an administrator, a business administrator of the church, not simply waiting on tables, but he was taking care of all the minutia, all the details, all of the things related to, uh, to ministering to the, to the physical needs of the people in the church, in the early church. It was an enormous task. There were somewhere upwards of 20 to 30,000 new believers that had come to Christ. Many had lost their jobs because of their commitment to Christ. There was a price to pay for being a Christian in those days. And so here we find Stephen before the Sanhedrin being indicted on false charges. And he's only been a deacon for a couple of weeks. I mean, this is not, there's no ramping up at all. I mean, this is like going from zero to 60 in like three seconds. And so we find Stephen in this place where he, he doesn't have time to get ready. He, he already had to be ready. His life had to be already a sacrifice of praise. He had to make a decision long before this moment to live courageously for Christ. He didn't have time to get full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit and full of loving kindness and full of power at this moment. It had to be in place already. Little did he know that his life would be so short and his ministry would be so brief. And yet here we find Stephen indicted on false charges. The charges are noted for us in chapter 6, verse 11 and 13. He was charged and accused of blaspheming against Moses and against God and speaking against the temple and against the law. Now, none of these things are true. It was a twisting of the gospel. It was a blatant effort to bring false accusations against Stephen to put him to death. We know that the temple and the Old Testament law were simply symbols. They were foreshadowing the ultimate fulfillment, which would be Christ himself. Christ is the fulfillment of the temple worship. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. All of these things that were preparation and groundwork for the people of Israel so that they could know when Christ came that he was the fulfillment, they rejected him. Why? Because they clung to Moses and to the temple and to the law as if it was these things and this person that was gonna deliver them and bring salvation. And the result was is that they began to really worship these symbols and signs, these foreshadowings that were to lead them to an understanding and a recognition of Christ when he came, but instead it led them into idolatry. And so Stephen presents a defense for himself that's amazing. He doesn't just defend himself, but he uses this moment to dig himself even deeper by presenting the gospel. He goes full throttle and not only explaining his position and the gospel, but he goes beyond that, and now he brings a counter-indictment against those who are indicting him. In the long sermon, and by the way, this is the longest sermon in the book of Acts, Stephen goes through and presents the history of Israel's relationship with God, but it's very narrow and very specific, and it addresses these two charges. Number one, the relationship to Moses, and number two, the relationship to the temple. These are the two primary areas, Moses and the law, and the worship in the temple, the building, the, the actual physical structure that they had in, just fallen in love with. It was like everything to them. They thought the temple was, that was the ground point. That was, that was everything to them in their worship. And so Stephen, in this lengthy message, addresses the issue of Moses and the temple, and he brings stinging indictments against them. And this is what he says to them. He says, your forefathers, 
who you are so desperately clinging to and aligning yourself with are those that dishonored Moses with their past rebellion. Number one, by rejecting his leadership. And we're told this in verse 35 through 38. They rejected his leadership and his prophecy that God would raise up one like him from among their own people. The second thing that they did that dishonored Moses, the very one that they claimed to honor, was that they, uh, that they disobeyed his commands. It means that they were unsubmissive and unwilling to listen with the intent of following. And the interesting thing, it says they turned back to Egypt. This is, a, this, is, this, this is such a powerful statement he is making because you know what repentance means, right? Repentance is metanoieo, which is the Greek word. It's a compound word meaning to change your mind. So if I'm going the wrong way, rebelling against God, and I repent, that means I'm having a complete change of heart and mind, and now I go in the direction of God. And these forefathers had done that. But then the Bible says that in the Greek it's strepho. They turned back again and went back to the life they had before. And by the way, I want to I warn you and encourage you is that one of Satan's great strategies for your life through difficulty, through hardship, through pain, through suffering, whatever it might be, is to get you to turn back. And turning back is not an option for a Christian. We can't turn back. And God is calling you to courageous living. And we need each other. I, I shared with you last week that last week was a very difficult week for me. I was just having a lot of spiritual warfare. And I can't tell you how many times over the years, I've been here nine years, and it's probably dozens of times that I thought, I should just leave. I should, somebody else should come and pastor the church. I can't do it anymore. Whatever. You know, I have those feelings. Anybody else feel like quitting sometimes? Quitting your marriage, quitting your job, quitting your kids, quitting whatever and just running away. I have those moments too. We cannot do that as Christians. Why? Because we have been called to live courageously like Stephen. But his forefathers, the forefathers of the Sanhedrin had turned from sin, turned to God, and then had turned back to sin again. We must not do that. And God will give us the power to live courageously. Some of you, quite frankly, just coming to church this morning was an act of courage, and I applaud you for coming. Some of you are coming and you're single without your spouse, and I applaud you for coming. Some of you have terrible illnesses and chronic pain. Some of you have lost family and friends recently. Some of you have lost children. Some of you have wayward children, and yet you keep showing up with God. And I want to tell you, you are living courageously. Sometimes I think just getting out of bed and facing the day is an act of courage. And so I want to say thank you. I want to encourage you this morning and say, well done with all the things and all responsibilities that God has given you that you have shown up. You've shown up to work. You've shown up in your marriages. You've shown up with your kids. You've shown up to church. You've shown up in your walk with God. But these folks that, that Stephen is indicting didn't show up. They quit showing up. There's a passage in 2 Peter that talks about this. It says that in uh, chapter 2, verse 22, of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow is washed, that is washed goes back to wallowing in the mud. So that's what we want to avoid. We don't want to go back. And some of you might even be tempted or, or you know, wanting to, to return to some things that you've done before. And I just want to encourage you. God brought you today. God brought this text up. The Holy Spirit speaking, don't go back. Don't go back to the things that... Uh, um, 
that brought death to you and didn't bring life to your relationship with God. So he indicts them for disobeying the commands of Moses. They were also indicted by Stephen in verse 41 and 43 of worshiping false gods. It goes to this idol worship of this calf when they said, oh, where is this guy, Moses? We don't even know where he is anymore. Let's worship a false god. And they dishonored the temple, number one, by overestimating its significance. Now, that was very common to do. Even the disciples in the book of Mark, as, as uh, the disciples along with Jesus, they evidently are just coming out of temple worship on the Sabbath, and they come out, and one of the disciples, we don't know which one it, when it was, but it might have been Peter, because he was always, you know, had something to say, and he comes out of the temple, and one of them says, Lord, Master, look at these massive stones and these magnificent buildings. You know, sometimes these guys, have you ever been around somebody really important, and you just don't know quite what to say, so you just say something, and afterwards you're like... Why did I say that, you know? But, you know, so here's Jesus, and these guys, they just can't have a moment of silence. They got to come up with some little funny thing to say and some, you know, magnificent thing to say. And so, so I'm imagining it's Peter, but it might have been one of the others. Look at this magnificent building and these magnificent giant stones, you know, as if, as if Jesus is going to be enamored by that. And Jesus said, hey, not one of these are going to be left on top of the other. God is going to bring judgment on this place. And they're like, what? You know? So it was very common for not just the disciples, but for the people of the Sanhedrin, the leaders, to, to think that this edifice, this building was, was, in essence, the focal point of Jewish worship. They misunderstood because God can't be contained in a building. It's God. It's Christ. It's the Spirit of God. They, collectively, he, singularly, is the focal point of worship. And so they overestimated the value and the significance of the temple. But they also underestimated its prophetic fulfillment. Because the Bible says in, in 1 Peter chapter 2 that you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ Jesus. So here's the message that, that the temple was to point to. The temple was temporary. The temple was not everything. The temple was simply an avenue for God to begin to turn the hearts of people to recognize that God wanted to take up his dwelling, his personal presence in the lives of men and women. And now this is the crazy thing. You are those stones. This church, this building, this tent, this asphalt pad, this staging isn't the church. When we leave today, the church leaves. This is not church anymore. When the church goes out the door this afternoon and we close everything up, there is no church here anymore. The church is dispersed all over this island. And I told the people last night when I saw their cars coming in and all the headlights coming in, I said, the church is coming, you know, the people, the people of God are arriving and the church is gathering to worship the Lord. But this is the wonderful thing, and this is from 1 Corinthians 3.16 is Paul says to the church, don't you know, don't you understand, don't you realize that you yourselves are the temple of God and that he's taken up residence in you. This is the most unbelievable, phenomenal, mind-bending truth of the New Testament besides salvation on the cross. And that's that God no longer lives in a temple built by human hands, but now he lives and takes up residence in the hearts of men and women that call on him. This is a phenomenal truth. And the, the Sanhedrin had missed it because they were clinging to the form rather than to the substance of what the temple pointed to. 
Well, Stephen also recounted their present rebellion in verses 51 through 52. Boy, this guy goes at it. He says to them, you were stiff-necked. You are a stiff-necked people. This is a nasty thing, by the way, to say to somebody. There are only 20 times in the Old Testament when God speaks this word, and on the heels of it, judgment always follows. It's kind of like God's last, you know, effort to communicate to his people who are rebellious. He says, you are a stiff-necked people. It means arrogant. It means proud, rebellious, stubborn, unfaithful, unwilling to be taught, unwilling to be led. Some of us were like that when we were in high school. You remember? Our poor parents. And now we have kids that are doing sometimes the same things. <laughs> but that is what stiff-necked means. And God says it 20 times in the Old Testament. And these people were stiff-necked. Now, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I'm Stephen. I realize the direction this whole thing is going. I got false charges brought against me for blasphemy. The Old Testament law in Leviticus 24 says that the punishment for that is death by stoning. And I realize I'm in deep trouble. If it were me, I would have, I would have chosen not to use the word stiff-necked. I would have come up with something nicer like, you know, couldn't you guys just kind of get with the program a little bit? I think God is trying to say something here. I mean, I don't want to, you know, get in your face or anything. I mean, you, you wondrous, illustrious group of people, I have so much respect for you and honor you and blah. He doesn't say any of that. It's like the guy has a death wish. If I didn't know better that the Holy Spirit was leading him, I'd say the guy was committing suicide by his comments. But he wasn't. He was living courageously. He was speaking words that God gave him and he didn't hold back. What an example. He's an inspiration to me in my own walk with the Lord. He tells us that they were stiff-necked stiff as evidenced by their uncircumcised hearts. We know that circumcision was an outward sign of, of a covenant with God. It was symbolic of cutting away of the flesh or the sin nature and saying, I don't want to live sinfully anymore. I want to separate myself as a person and for the Israelites as a people of God that are set apart holy and only for a holy God. That's what circumcision signified. And so Stephen says that you are stiff-necked and you have uncircumcised hearts and uncircumcised ears, which they understood to mean that they were rebellious and sinful and wicked and not set apart for God. No matter what they said, their lifestyle contradicted everything that they taught. I was thinking about this, about having a circumcised heart, because even for ourselves, it's important for us to be a people who have hearts that are set apart for God. And even this morning, I believe the Lord is calling you and he's calling me and he's saying, I want you to completely set your heart apart for me. I want your heart. I don't want to share it. I don't want it defiled by sinful things or sinful behaviors, sinful activities. I want you to set your life apart for me. I, he says, I set my son apart for you. And in response, I simply want you to set your heart apart for me. How do we do it? Well, the Bible tells us that in Deuteronomy 10, 16, we have a part in this. In that passage, the Lord says that we need to circumcise our hearts before God. So we have a part in this. We have a partnership. We've got to cooperate. God can't do it without our cooperation. So he says, circumcise your heart. So this morning, we can do that. We can say, God, simply coming before him and saying, I want you to cut away anything that's not of you. And I surrender and yield my heart, representing my life, for your service and your purposes. Another thing that the Bible says about having a circumcised heart is that God does it. 
Deuteronomy 35 through six, it says that he will circumcise our hearts, and I love this passage. It says that he will cause you to lean toward him to obey his commands and follow him with a whole heart. I love that. You know, I know myself well enough that I can't make commitments and follow through. I, there's just no way I can live the Christian life by my own resolve. But God says that he will, it's in the future tense, he will circumcise your hearts. And he will enable you to walk with him. He will help you to set apart your life for him. But there's a third component here of how we have a circumcised heart, and that's by the work of Christ. And we're told that in Colossians chapter two, verse 11. It says, as a result of his death on the cross, he has circumcised your hearts by faith, past tense. He has circumcised your heart. So this is the truth, is that God's purpose and plan for you is to circumcise your hearts. He did it through Christ and you received it when you came into salvation by faith, your hearts were circumcised and set apart for him. And so what we need to do is having circumcised our hearts, turned away from what's evil, we need to keep going in this way and never ever turn back. We are called to live courageously. We are called to live with nobility and honor for the kingdom of God. And it's all God's work. We can't do it, I can't do it. Christ has done it. And all he calls us to do is to never stop, never give up, always put our confidence in him and always lean on him. Another evidence of their stiff-necked attitude was their resistance to the Holy Spirit. We've talked about the Holy Spirit quite often and quite frequently as we've gone through the book of Acts, but I wanna talk about various ways that the Bible says that we can be um, resistant or uh, disobedient to the Holy Spirit. In Nehemiah 9.30, it says that it, one of the ways that we can do it is by failing to pay attention to him. You know, he speaks to us and he says, do this or do that, and we said, eh, not interested right now. Or rebelling against the Holy Spirit, Isaiah 63.10. Or resisting the Holy Spirit, the passage we're looking at now in Acts 7.51. Or grieving the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30. Or insulting the Holy Spirit, Hebrews 10.29. Or putting the Holy Spirit's fire out, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19. So what's the message here? Well, obviously we don't wanna live that way. So how do we avoid that? Well, I can tell you that God's purpose for your life this morning is that you would live absolutely full to the brim of the Holy Spirit. How do we experience that? We experience it by simply acknowledging his work. What's the Holy Spirit's work? To reveal Christ, to magnify the name of God, to guide us, to direct us, to mentor us, to tutor us, to teach us, to lead us. So every time you have a good thought, the Bible says every good and perfect gift is from above. So instead of you know, patting yourself on the back, offer a word of thanks to the Holy Spirit. Every time that the God blesses you in the word and you get something meaningful, instead of you know, you know, rewarding yourself with a frappuccino because you're so you know, wonderfully intelligent that you got something good out of the passage, Worship God and thank the Holy Spirit because he's your tutor, your mentor. When you have a, a temptation and you overcome it, thank the Holy Spirit. When God gives you a word in a, in a situation and, and you come away from it saying, whoa, that was God, instead of receiving that to yourself, give it back as an act of praise to the Holy Spirit. What you will find is that the Holy Spirit never stops working, never stops speaking, never stops mentoring you. And as you begin to worship and thank him and honor his role in the Trinity, as your mentor and your tutor and the revealer of, of the word of God, you'll find that your relationship with the Holy Spirit blossoms and you realize how chatty he is and how often he speaks. 
And so when the Holy Spirit speaks, don't resist him. And you know what I'm talking about, because I've done it too. God speaks to me about something. I'm reading through the word and I'm loving it. I'm enjoying it. And all of a sudden it's like out of, the, out of nowhere, the Holy Spirit says, you're not doing that. Or you did something that contradicts that teaching. And I'm like, let's move on to the next verse, shall we? You know, I have a thousand different ways and I can ignore him, but you know what I'm talking about. And there's some things that even today that you know the Holy Spirit spoke to you, maybe even years ago, that you've just been trying to move past, but he won't let go. And even now as I'm speaking, you're thinking of those things that you've neglected. And I want to encourage you, don't make the tragic mistake that the Sanhedrin made by being stiff-necked, by rejecting, ignoring, grieving, whatever you want to call it, the Holy Spirit. But yield yourselves today and live courageously. Oh yeah, the things that you're thinking about would take a lot of guts to go back and take care of. That's the Christian life. That's what God has called you to. Why? Because he wants you free. He wants you absolutely free and you can't be free if you've resisted the work of God. And you can't live courageously when you have things on your conscience. You can't speak boldly when you have sin that you've regarded in your heart. So I'm encouraging you, turn away from those things and turn toward God because God is gonna bless you. God is gonna establish you. God is gonna strengthen you. God is gonna minister to you. God is gonna give you life abundantly. God is going to let you hear him speak regularly through his spirit if you will allow him to. But it doesn't happen for those that resist as the Sanhedrin had resisted. The result was is that they persecuted and murdered God's prophets. That's how bad it got. That's how resistant they were, is that they just went fully ahead. It's one thing to want to kill somebody. I think we probably all have thought that at different times. But it's a whole other thing to actually do it, and it's a whole other thing to collectively, as a religious group, make the decision to do it. So far, he says, is that they were guilty as evidenced by the betrayal and murder of the Messiah. That's how bad it got. They also failed to obey the law, we're told in verse 53. The Israelites, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders were so proud of the law. They were so proud that they were the only nation on the face of the earth that had God come down and inscribe with his own finger the Ten Commandments, much less all the other laws that he gave to Moses. They were so proud of that. That was their identity. And yet, Stephen confronts them and says, oh, you have the law, but you fail to obey it. It's the same thing that Jesus said in John 7, 19, the same thing that Paul accused them of in, in Romans chapter two. Listen to what Paul says. He's confronting the same people. He says, you brag about the law. You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking that law? He says, as it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of your behavior. So in other words, it's, it's, it's the same problem that we have today. Hypocrisy among Christians is what turns people away. Oh, how can I encourage you to live a life of integrity? You know what it calls for? Courage. It all comes back to this issue. How do we get courage? Is it because we're tough? Is it because we're, we're, you know, we're, we're willing to jump in the fray more than someone else who's weak-willed and weak-minded? No, it's not that. It goes back to what we found about Stephen's life. He was a man that was full of faith. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of loving kindness, and he was full of power. 
that made him courageous. Those are all things that God did. Stephen didn't do those things. God did them. And what I want to encourage you this morning is that I believe that God is looking and calling out to the church for courageous men and women who are fearless. How do we experience that? The same way Stephen did. Somewhere along the way, Stephen yielded himself to God. Somewhere along the way, Stephen understood what Galatians 2.20 says, that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. It's no longer my life, it's not my choices, it's not my prerogatives, it's not my dreams, it's not my priorities, it's not my vision. God, what do you want? My life is absolutely devoted to you. I am a servant of the Most High God. God, I yield everything. My heart is circumcised. I'm set apart for you and for you alone. What would you do? Fill your servant. Fill me with your power. All of us praying this. Fill us, God, with faith, with the power of your spirit, with loving kindness, and with power to preach the gospel. That's all that that Stephen did that set him apart. And God can do that with you if you're willing. But the people that he was addressing failed to obey the law that they worshiped. Charles Spurgeon, related to this text, has written something I wanna share with you about the courage of Stephen. He says this about Stephen and his testimony in his sermon. He says, the greatness of Stephen's sermon is not only its content, but it's in its courage. He takes the sharp knife of the word and rips up the sins of the people, laying open the inward parts of their hearts and the secrets of their souls. He could not have delivered that searching address with greater fearlessness had he been assured that they would thank him for the operation. The fact that his death was certain had no other effect upon him than to make him yet more zealous. Wow, I don't know how that affects you, but I'm like, I want to live that way. I know I'm not that man yet, but I want to live that way. I want to live courageously. I want to live zealously. If the Christian life is worth living, it's worth living with everything that we've got. And I'm encouraging you, even as you have already demonstrated courage in so many arenas of your life, I'm calling you to stand up, to rise up as the church and to live courageous lives, not because you're courageous, but because God as you yield yourself to him, can make you a courageous man or woman. Well, when the Sanhedrin heard these words from Stephen, uh, they were quite upset. It says they were furious. It means cut to the heart. Literally, the text means that their chest and their heart was ripped in two. It's a very descriptive way of indicating their anger. In fact, there's only one other place in the whole New Testament where this word is used, and it's when Peter finished his sermon saying, we must obey God rather than men, and he said, you killed the author of life. And that's the only other time in the New Testament where this word is used, being furious. You know, that's what the truth of the Bible does to people. The truth of God presents people with a choice. You can't sit on the fence with God. You either have to fall on one side or the other. And this is exactly what the Bible says, by the way, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. The Bible says that godly sorrow and worldly sorrow are the only choices that we have when we're convicted of sin. Godly sorrow is kind of evidenced by, you know, denial. We get confronted by someone, by our spouse, by our kids, by our boss, by a friend, by whoever, and we, we resist. You know, it's like we're offended. You know, we get angry. It's like we deny it, and then we justify it, 
And then we become angry at the person who confronted us. And then sooner or later, we're like, oh, I'm bummed I did that. That's worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow, the Bible says, brings death. It brings death to friendships. It brings death to our position and work. It brings death to our marriages, to our, child, to our children. Worldly sorrow isn't the purpose of God's conviction. God convicts, that's one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit. He convicts us and his desire by convicting us is not worldly sorrow, but godly sorrow. What does godly sorrow look like? Godly sorrow comes and it's like, oh, it hurts, just like it does when we're worldly sorrow. So the beginning is the same, but then everything is different. Because when a godly person is convicted and confronted with sin and they recognize it, they immediately confess it. They say, I'm guilty. You're right. I've done what's wrong. I shouldn't have done that. And then it's followed up with repentance, which is that change of mind, going from this direction to this direction and saying, God, I want to be different. And the Bible says that godly sorrow leads to eternal life. So you've got death on the one hand and life on the other. And God is offering this to us every day. I, my guess is that some of you were convicted by the Holy Spirit this week. I would be surprised if there was anyone that wasn't because the Holy Spirit's constantly speaking, helping to guide us, helping to correct us, helping us to make things right. Here's my encouragement to you. You wanna live courageously? Then respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Take care of business. Do what other people won't do. Other people sweep it under the carpet. Other people said, oh, forgive and forget. Other people say, oh, it doesn't matter. It didn't really do anything. It was just me and, you know, they'll get over it. Oh, they've done the same to me and worse. Those are excuses. What God is calling us to do as a holy people set apart for him is to go back and make things right. So if you want to live a courageous life, I'm telling you, that takes guts. And some of you have been doing that recently. I mean, probably many of you have, but I've been talking to some of you. And some of you recently have blown me away by your courage to do what's right and to go back. Things that I'm just, I, I wish I could share with you, but I'm not at liberty to do that. But, but things that would blow your mind, costly repentance, costly restoration and restitution, going back and making what's right. I'm telling you, it is so freeing. It's the first thing that God spoke to me when I received Christ. I was so excited. I was 17. I prayed at night, got on my knees and repented of my sin. I asked him into my heart. I said, Lord, I'm, I'm in the essence, I wasn't saying this because I didn't understand it then, but I was circumcising my heart. I was setting myself apart for God. I don't know what you want to do with me. I'm kind of a mess, but whatever you want to do with my life, I give it to you. At 17, I recognized that I'm not going to be fulfilled in my own effort. The next day, the Holy Spirit, as I was reading the Bible, I was just voracious reading the Bible, and he spoke to me. He said, Bob, you need to go back and make all that junk right with everybody that you've offended, you've stolen from, you've misled, you've hurt, you've harmed in some way. It took me months. I made a long list. It was like two pages long. I wish I'd kept it. I'm probably glad I didn't, but, but it was like two pages long of all the things that I'd, you know, borrowed tools, never returned. They got kind of rusty, was ashamed to bring them back, so I just never turned them back at all. Um, things that I'd stolen, and some of you know, oh, you guys, huh? done the same thing. Things that I'd stolen, girls that I dated that I had offended and hurt their, their hearts and their feelings. Just a whole series of things. And God the Spirit just called me and said, you need to go back. Nobody told me to do that. But God told me. I'm telling you, it took some courage to do it. But I was like free. And I got to share with so many of my friends. I got to lead a few of them to Christ because they were blown away. Like, why, why are you doing this? I went out and spent a couple thousand dollars, all my hard-earned money, you know, as a high schooler during the summer. And I bought them even better tools Whatever they got me, I made sure it was better and nicer than what I had 
stolen or borrowed or whatever. I made restitution. And I think that that's one of the things that the Holy Spirit is calling us to do, is to respond instead of being furious when the Holy Spirit convicts us, is to yield ourselves more fully to God. The Bible also tells us that the Sanhedrin, this collective group of 70 men, gnashed their teeth. You know, there are only seven other times in the New Testament when this phrase is used of gnashing of teeth, and it's always Jesus speaking of the inhabitants of hell and what they'll be doing to pass the time away. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's what they're gonna do. It's not recorded anywhere else except for this text of the Sanhedrin, the spiritual leaders of Israel, gnashing their teeth. In essence, what, what the scripture is revealing to us is that these guys were already evidencing in, in an, an advanced state their future home and their future activity by doing it now on the earth at that time of Stephen's convicting word through the Holy Spirit. And so they were gnashing their teeth. But here's Stephen. In the face of this ungodly behavior, in front of these religious leaders who were re revealing themselves really to be citizens of, future citizens of hell, is Stephen had a completely peaceful response. I mean, these guys were angry. I mean, we're not talking like seething, we're talking about violent anger, explosive anger, and it's gonna get worse. But here it is, it says that Stephen in verse 55 is full of the Holy Spirit. Here's this guy again, he's just like, it doesn't matter what you put this guy through, he just leaks Jesus. He leaks the Holy Spirit. It's just overflowing. Every time somebody pushes on him, he overflows the work of God in his life. And I was thinking about this because you've had people push on you this week, <laughs> haven't you? You've had your spouse push on you. You've had your, you know, your boss push on you. You've had your kids push on you. And sometimes what leaks out isn't exactly godly, you know? But here's the, here's the thing is that this is the, this is the kind of life that, that Stephen lived. He wasn't living a superficial Christian life where he only leaked Jesus when he was in good circumstances, but when he really got pushed, the same thing came out, the work of God. And so we find that he's full of peace. We already know he's full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of loving kindness and full of power, but it's emphasized again that he is full of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that he looked to heaven. It means that he fixated his gaze on heaven. Why? Something miraculous happened. We already something's happened to Stephen. And the last teaching we went through in, in the uh, in end of chapter six is that he's glowing with the Shekinah glory of God, which the Sanhedrin would immediately understand as God's affirmation on this man's message, but they rejected it. And now the second thing that's just mind-blowing happens to Stephen. Heaven opens up for him. This only happens a few times in the Bible where men see heaven. And he sees the glory of God and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now that's very interesting because all the other texts in Scripture, the majority of them, there's only a couple of exceptions, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God signifying the completed work. He's at rest, still working, but at rest, having completed the work of salvation on the cross. But here he's standing, and Stephen looks up to heaven, and he alone evidently sees this vision of heaven, and God, for the benefit of this martyred saint who was about to lose his life, opens heaven, tears it open, <clears throat> and lets him see something. And he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, What's the significance of that? Well, I've got some suggestions. I think possibly it's to express solidarity with Stephen in the moment of his suffering. 
No one had suffered like Christ. And Stephen was going to be the first to follow in the steps of Jesus as a martyr for the gospel of Christ. And I think Jesus was in his seat next to the Father, and he couldn't sit any longer, and he stood up as an act of solidarity with his son. I think another possibility is to honor Stephen as the church's first martyr. So along with solidarity, in the, in the, in the midst of the heavenly host, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and the, and the myriad of saints, and the, the unnumbered angels of heaven, Jesus stands. Reminds me of the Messiah when the king stood and how from that time on, once a handle wrote the Messiah and it was performed and the king stood, that's why we always stand at the end in the hallelujah chorus. And I'm, I'm thinking Jesus is standing to honor this man of courage, just like us, made of the same stuff and yet willing to die for Christ. I think a third possibility is that he was confessing Stephen before the father. The Bible tells us in Matthew 10, 32, that if we deny the Lord, the Lord will deny us. But if we confess him, he will confess us before the Father. And I can imagine in my mind that not only is he standing up and he's cheering Stephen, an act of solidarity, an act of encouragement and honor in the hosts of heaven, but he turns to the Father and said, that's my boy, that's mine. And he's honoring me and he's honoring you. I think the third possibility Thank you. God is good. I think is to welcome Stephen home. I can see in my mind's eye Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father and Stephen is preparing to give his life and Jesus knows it's going to happen. And so he's got his arms open wide and he's standing to receive his son. And I think to myself, what a God we have. What a Savior in Christ who has suffered so much and because he suffered so greatly, he knows how to minister to you that suffer. And he's waiting for you. And your time will come. And I want you to see Jesus standing when the heavens part and you see him. Because I believe that when we make our transition, that we will see Jesus. And he's going to have his arms open wide. He's going to be expressing honor because you live courageously. He's going to be expressing solidarity because you suffered in this world for his namesake. He's going to be expressing his confession that you belong to him before the Father. And he's going to receive you with the words, well done, good and faithful and courageous son. Good and faithful and courageous daughter in the kingdom of God. In the meantime, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, that there is a cloud of witnesses in heaven right now that's watching you run your race. It's the cloud of heaven. It's the, it's the saints. It's all the saints of all the past. And they're there in the presence of God. And they've already seen Jesus standing at their entrance into the kingdom of God. And they are now watching in the stands. They're watching and they're cheering you on. And they're saying to you, live courageously. Live the Christian life with courage. How do you do it? Be full of faith. Be full of the Holy Spirit. Be full of loving kindness and be full of the power of the Holy Spirit. God is able to make you stand and to live this kind of a life. Well, we know that the text tells us that Stephen testified to what he saw in heaven and the Sanhedrin went absolutely ballistic. Any pretense of legal etiquette or due process was abandoned at that moment. They covered their ears. They yelled at the top of their voices. They all rushed at him 
It's interesting, it's homao homothumadon. Remember this word homothumadon from a few weeks ago? Homothumadon is that, that unity in one accord, the church, the early church, gathering together to worship, gathering together to hear the teaching, gathering together to serve, gathering together to pray, homothumadon. And yet now the word is homao homothumadon. It means to rush at in one accord. You know the only other time that this is mentioned in scripture? It's when the herd of demon-possessed pigs run off the cliff to their death. Do you see the word association here? It's things that are kind of hidden in the language, but they're there nonetheless. That is the, that's the kind of intensity and out-of-control anger that the Sanhedrin were demonstrating. And they dragged him out of the city and they began to stone him an illegal act at the hands of an impulsive mob. The Bible tells us that they laid their, their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. When I think of a young man, I'm thinking of like a teenager, and that may have been your thought as well. But in the Greek, it means someone who is in his prime. It's someone that is somewhere between 30 and 40 years of age. We know this because later in Paul's writings, he would confess that he cast his vote with the Sanhedrin for the death of Stephen. You had to be 30 years old to be in the Sanhedrin. So he was somewhere between 30 and 40, but probably on the younger side because they referred to him as a young man. Boy, that's looking good. I'm, I, I'm 45. I, I'm a little over the top of a young man, but, but that makes me feel a lot better to know that young man can be 30 to 40. But here is, here is Paul, Saul at the time. They brought the clothes and they laid it at his feet. Why? Because stoning was a vigorous activity. You know, we think, oh, th somebody threw a couple rocks, hit him in the head and he died. That's not so. Stoning was brutal. Stoning took time. Stoning required a lot of people to hit him in the body and head with rocks. And the rocks that they chose, they didn't choose like big massive stones, they chose smaller stones that wouldn't immediately kill. It was a punishment. It was used to be a deterrent. It wasn't quick and painless. And so these guys had to take off their clothes because they were going to get hot and sweaty doing this. And they laid these clothes at the feet of Stephen and they began to stone Stephen. The Bible tells us in, uh, in 59, verse 59 through the end of the chapter, Stephen's response. He simply prayed that the Lord would receive him. He's just like completely oblivious. He's not, of course. Physically, he's being pummeled and he's in his process of dying. And yet, he says, Lord, receive me. He's got his eyes fixed on the kingdom of God. I love what, what uh, David says in Psalm 27. In Psalm 27, David is talking about his enemies and his, the, these people are against him. And though an army besiege me, though war break out, yet I will trust in you. And then he says, yet one thing I ask of you, only one thing I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. So David's got all of this chaos in his life and yet all he wants to do is be in the presence of God to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And so here we find Stephen, chaos, mob rule, and yet Stephen is fixated on Christ. Makes me wonder that, you know, the times that we go through difficulties and life isn't fair and there's injustice and we're being mistreated and we've been falsely accused. How do we respond? Well, the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4 that when we are being falsely accused or inappropriately persecuted, the Bible tells us what to do. It says that we are to entrust ourselves to our faithful creator and continue to do good. My encouragement to you is when you face those times, look up. 
Look up. Let your eyes lift above the circumstances and put your trust in God. Don't fight a battle. It's, you can't win. You can't win fighting flesh with flesh. What Stephen did is that he looked up and he said, Lord, receive me. And he cried out for the mercy of his murderers. This is exactly what Jesus did when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. By the way, this testimony, I believe, gnawed away at the heart of Saul for years until his Damascus Road conversion. But I believe that it's Stephen's prayer that had huge influence in the conversion of Saul later in life. It was a delayed answer to prayer, but it was an answer to prayer. And it came because a man was so courageous this guy is so full of loving kindness that even as he's being murdered by mob rule, loving kindness, he's getting pushed and loving kindness is flowing out, even in that situation. His example is an example of courage. His example is an example of what a Christian is to do and how a Christian is to respond under even the most adverse circumstances. How much more so for those of us that get you know, a little offended at work or a little offended by our spouse or somebody doesn't do something in a timely fashion or not the way that we wanted it done. And so we find that Stephen is a great example of how we should respond. I want to conclu conclude by making several observations about what Stephen has left us as a result of his short ministry, very brief. Number one is that he provided us with a reliable model of what authentic Christian Christianity really looks like. In his knowledge of the word, this guy, do you realize that he ver verbatim quoted about 15 or 16 passages of the Old Testament when he went through his sermon? From memory. He knew the word of God. The Holy Spirit spoke through him, yes, but he was drawing on what God had already hidden in his heart because he was a man of the word. He had studied to show himself approved and he was a workman that didn't need to be ashamed. And so in his character and his courage and his knowledge of the word and his, un and his unswerving dedication to preaching the gospel, we have a great example of an authentic Christian. Secondly, he proved that the value and impact of a man's life and ministry has more to do with the content than with the duration. I'm afraid that too many of us, myself included, are thinking we're going to live a long time. There's always going to be time in the future to get busy for God. We don't know that. One thing that we do know is that Stephen, in the short life he lived, ramped up and circumcised his entire life and dedicated his heart to the purposes of God. The third thing that we know about Stephen and his instrumental ministry in the New Testament is that he was pivotal in the advancement of the gospel because after this, as we study next week, we'll discover that the church was scattered because of a persecution that broke out as a result of mob rule beginning with the Sanhedrin. And that persecution would lead to the next phase of God's plan of taking the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the fourth thing that I notice about Stephen is that he preached the gospel to the Apostle Paul who would later become the most influential believer and the most prolific writer in the history of the church for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Little did Stephen know that the young man, 30-year-old, 32, 33-year-old Paul, who cast his vote against Stephen would later become one of the most powerful leaders in church history. I'm inspired by this text. I want to live this life. 
I want you to live this life. But more importantly, God wants you to live this life. And so I'm asking you to set your hearts apart for God. I'm asking you to live courageously. I'm encouraging you to be men of faith, women of faith, men who are full of the Holy Spirit, women who are full of the Holy Spirit, men who are full of loving kindness, women who are full of loving kindness, men who are full of power because of your walk with God, women who are full of power in the Holy Spirit. There's a great work to do here and we need every hand on deck. God is calling us. God is privileging us. And the day will come when he will receive us. And you and I together, as we've lived courageously here, will be rewarded with an inheritance that we can't even imagine or hope for or even comprehend in this life. And you will hear the words, well done. Come home and enjoy your master's happiness for all of eternity. It will be ours with him and with the saints. Father, we thank you for our time here this morning. Lord, we love you. Lord, we surrender our hearts to you. And God, we ask that you would do in us what we can't do ourselves. God, circumcise our hearts. Set us apart for you alone, holy for you, only for you. And God, may you fill every man and woman here with faith. May you fill them with your spirit. May you fill them with loving kindness and with power. And no matter what happens to us this week, no matter what is done to us or how we're treated or mistreated, no matter how we're pushed around, that nothing but you would come out. Nothing but you would overflow. And that, God, our eyes and our hearts would be fixated on Jesus. As the Bible says in Colossians 3, that we are to look to above. Don't look to things of this earth, but look to the things above. Our reward is waiting for us. Our King is coming. Our Savior reigns. And Jesus, I thank you that you're standing. I thank you that you stood for Stephen. And I thank you that you're standing for every man and woman here and you will complete the work that you've started. Praise you, God, that you will help us live courageously. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before we finish our service, it's possible that there are some here today that you've never received Christ. The, the beginning process, the beginning of a relationship is being reconciled to God. Remember how I talked about the ministry of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction? When the Holy Spirit convicts a person, he's saying, I want you to agree with me that you've done wrong, that you have not followed Christ, that you have not obeyed, that you have lived willfully doing what you want to do. And I want you, the Holy Spirit would say, I want you to confess that. Just agree with me. He's not trying to rub your nose in it, but he's just saying, would you agree that you've done what's wrong? And then having done so, would you agree that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins so that you could be born again, so that your sins could be forgiven? That is God's only method for taking away your sin, but he's made it available. And he's saying that you just need to accept that and to say, yes, I would like to be forgiven of my sin. And then God says, I want you to set yourself apart for me and experience the abundant life. It's a costly life, it's gonna take courage. Not everyone wants to live that way. If you've never done that, but you would like to, and you'd like to say, I want to follow Christ, and it's the first time you're ever 
committing to that before anyone, I want you to raise your hand just right now. Is there anyone here you would like to receive Christ? You'd like to give your heart to the Lord? You'd like to be a follower of Jesus Christ? You want to live a courageous life and you've never done that before? Is there anyone here? Don't be embarrassed. Don't, I'm not going to make you do anything except raise your hand and we're going to pray for you. Is there anyone here you've never received Christ but you would like to today? Okay, I don't see any hands. I'm trusting all of you know the Lord. For the rest of you, do you want to live courageously? Do you want to live the life that God has called you to? Don't do it in your own strength. You don't have it in you. But just cry out to God. Yield yourself to him and watch what he can do with your life.